Greetings, citizen. Welcome to the show, and thank you for listening. For more of the art of wargaming in your life, definitely check us out on Instagram and Facebook. If you'd like to support the show, we have a Patreon account where you can do just that for as little as $1 a month. What we can offer will expand as the show does. If you don't have extra funds but would still like to help us out, you can give us a like, share, or five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to get in touch? Feel free to message us or hit up our email, artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you because we know the world is vast with many different the military maxims of Napoleon. Welcome to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Verm Network. I am Yaga Malark. I, before we get into it, need to say thank you so much for your patience. It is wonderful to be back. I missed y'all. And uh, yeah, as, as I've said before, and those of you who have been listening to the show for a while will know that in the late summer, we typically have a little bit of a hiatus that is forced upon us by nature and just by the nature of summer itself. You know, people get going, people get doing things. As we know from history, summer is the perfect time for campaigning, well, not just warfare-wise, but just getting stuff done. And then, of course, add to the fact that there's a few other considerations that keep me from uh, wanting to record <laughs> this time of year. And, and we've talked about that, too. The smoke around here really, really vexes me, y'all. And it makes me awful clouded in the chest. And so I figure that y'all don't want to sit there and listen to me clearing my throat for, you know, 45 minutes or so. So I thought I'd spare you from that particular... Well, you probably wouldn't hear it. To be honest, you guys probably wouldn't hear it too much. My editor, on the other hand, will probably put an ice pick through my eye <laughs> if I if I do that to her. So, yeah, so I appreciate your patience once again, and we are back, baby. So, uh, yeah, in, in full steam. Well, let's see. Uh, recently for me in Wargaming, there's been a, a couple of developments. First off, uh, dealing with the Xbox, I have started playing a game called Mordhau. And uh, many of you probably already know what it is, but for those of you who don't, it is very much like a realistic medieval combat game where the mechanics are extremely uh, difficult to pull off correctly in terms of like your timings against your opponents. You have to worry about weapon delays from the time that you start to throw your shot to when it actually lands. Uh, there's all sorts of blocking mechanics within it too. It is just a very, very, very well-developed uh, game. For, for mimicking that sort of warfare. And I've been very much enjoying it because even though the mechanics, like the, my learning of the game itself is still progressing slowly, there's a rather steep learning curve on this particular game, um, I do find myself at a little bit of an advantage, I would think, because I already have fairly good battlefield awareness. I'm accustomed to watching and adjusting to a changing battlefield. Uh, even just today, I, I went to uh, pr to practice because we had a nice clear day and I could go and fight. And even there, like you, the, the battlefield gets chaotic really fast. The best laid plans, as we've said, just go to dust. And so having another place where that is more realistic in the way that it plays out. And of course, there's also armor. Armor may slow you down, 
but it also protects you better. So uh, there's, a, there's a little trade-off right there too. So that one's a lot of fun. I don't know if you all have checked out Mordhau, but if you are into medieval fighting and are looking for a, a little piece of realism, difficult, definitely a, a learning experience, but a, a fun learning experience, I would definitely recommend this one. That's spelled uh, Mike Oscar Romeo Delta Hotel Alpha Uniform. And uh, yeah, check that one out. Well, let's talk 40K for a second. As you all have known throughout the course of this show, I've had many different armies. I've had Imperial Guard, I've had various types of Space Marine, mostly Dark Angels. I have played uh, Gene Stealer Cult, Adeptus Mechanicus, and several others. But uh, I am now pared down. I am now pared down to being an exclusively Knights player. And not, not, um, not just Imperial Knights, I also have Chaos Knights. But just in terms of my overall strategy and overall focus, it is going to be as a Knights player. Now, when we're doing army selection for something like 40k, there is something that draws each of us to whichever armies we happen to choose. And we choose them for varied reasons. Some people will choose an army because they like the way it looks. And they say, man, that would be a lot of fun to paint. And so they pick it up and they start to paint it. Other folks are very much into the lore. And they say, oh my goodness, I love this particular chapter of Space Marines, or I love this particular uh, craft world for the Eldar. And they get really into that portion of it, and they want to kind of play that out on the tabletop. Have these stories where you can see them. Some people choose their armies out of the meta. I know several people who have picked up their armies because of what does well in the current stack. And that's, that's what they're into. They're very competitive people. They're very much motivated by winning at all costs. And so they target these, these really good armies. And, uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. I play against several of those guys and they make me better as a, as a player. So we need those hyper competitive people in our, in our groups in order to help us all grow with them. And then you have people like me who have picked their army, not just because of those other reasons, because yes, I love knights. They are amazing when painted up. Um, you know, I, I love their lore. I love reading about the knights and how they were involved in various things. I need to make more books, though. I need more knight books in my life. Um, and, you know, I, I also am a competitive person, let's be honest. And knights are not exactly a bad army at the moment. Now, I mean, Imperial Knights are doing better than Chaos Knights at the time of this recording, but both are still doing very well in the stack. They're all vehicle armies in an addition that has a... Uh... Vehicles do typically better, I find, in this particular edition than they have in previous editions that I've been a part of. So, uh, take that for what you will. So I like Knights. I'm a Knight player now, and... I've got nothing wrong with it. I've, I've had a few guilt trips thrown my way for it. They're like, uh, oh, knights and uh, whatever. And it's like, well, look, uh, for a big part of it for me, and this is the final reason, is I'm getting older. I'm not a young man anymore. I've been in a lot of training accidents, a lot of uh, injuries concerning stuff like Bellagarth. I've been in a couple of rollovers. I am not a spring chicken anymore. And sometimes leaning over a board, moving a bunch of little models in and out of tight spaces like buildings can get tedious, painful, downright painful at times. And to sit there and have a, a pleasant game ruined 
by pain and then have to deal with that for the next several days, that just takes away from my enjoyment of it. It takes away from my desire to do it in the first place. And I do a show, as you are probably aware, about wargaming. And there isn't much use doing a show about wargaming if one is not wargaming. That's my logic anyways. So nights are my way to stay with it. Nights are my ways to still participate and not have as many models on the table. And the ones that I do have on the table are large and easy to move around. And I don't have to worry about bringing them in and out of buildings because they just, they don't do buildings. Buildings are in the way for knights as a general rule. So, and for those of you who are not players of 40k, uh, knights are gigantic mechs with a pilot inside. And uh, I mean, think, think most mech things that you would know of. Uh, in fact, a good example, I just, I just picked up another game called Mech Warrior. It's Mech Warrior 5 Mercenaries. This one is probably the most accurate to Imperial Knights and how they're kind of playing out because you've got larger stompy ones that have weapons on both arms. You can have melee weapons in there too. You've got shorter uh, uh, ones that do not look humanoid as much, but they're, they're basically just running weapons platforms, very much like an armager. And so I'm really enjoying Mech Warrior as well because it's letting me play out my, my knight fantasies in some way without having to have somebody come over and, and play a tabletop game with me. It's pretty cool. Pretty cool. On that note of recognizing limits, which is what we all must do, the last episode that you would have heard, I think, would have been the one where I was preparing to go to Chaos Wars. And I was preparing to have a lot of material after Chaos Wars, and I was really looking forward to it. But coming up to it, I saw that there were a number of issues. One, there was being a unnaturally, uh, un uncharacteristic bloom of mosquitoes and other bugs that were there. There was also heat projected, like it was supposed to be in the uh, low hundreds at this event, camping. And I've got a couple of considerations that make it so that I should not be out in that kind of heat. It is very, very unhealthy for me personally. I think most people in general, but me personally to be out in that heat. And so I avoided going. And for the most part, I'm okay with that decision. It was a little cooler than originally forecast. And apparently the bugs were also far better than were originally forecast. But I did... I'm learning to do at this point in my life. Remember that I've had a lot of physical stuff at this point. I am beginning to recognize and honor my limits. One of the things that the army teaches you is to how to find your limit and push right on past that puppy. Like you, don't, you don't have to worry about it. Like you, you found the line, acknowledge the line, give it a little salute, and party on. And that's why ibuprofen is affectionately referred to as ranger candy in the services because those poor guys are popping it constantly. That's how much they have to exert, how much pressure and strain they're putting upon their bodies. And that's fine. I was fine in my early twenties, but now, now it's a matter of like, if I want to actually do well, if I actually want my body to function the way I want it, I have to accept and obey my limitations. Now with this also comes recognizing strengths. We do have to be honest with ourselves. And for me, you know, there, there are parts of my body that may not be doing as well, but my mind remains as sharp as ever. And so instead of dwelling on my uh, diminishing physical prowess, I'm instead trying to dwell on the fact that I have 
other things to keep me entertained. I, I like reading old books and talking about them. You might have noticed. And that's something that I can do regardless of whether or not my body is hurting. And there are days like today where it was nice and cool. And the smoke got stripped out of the air here. And I got to go fight. And it was a perfect field, y'all. Let me tangent for a second. It was perfect today. Nice temperature. Nice involvement. Wonderful attitudes. Just, just really balanced, good fighting. It was one of those days... That makes you that makes you glad to be back. I had had to miss about a month, about a month worth of fighting for various reasons between the heat and the smoke. And so being able to go back and actually swing stick with my friends, with my community, was wonderful. So do I enjoy taking a month off from fighting? Absolutely not. I would I would rather not do that. But I am also not, as I say, a spring chicken. And I need to acknowledge that if I actually want to keep doing the things that I love to do, because if I do overexert myself at this point, and, and many of you who are getting, not old, I don't, I'm not like old, I'm not AARP range old, but in terms of athletics, I'm definitely old. And so those of you who are of similar minds, those of you who have done some sort of athletics for your life, you, you know what I'm talking about. You know, you get into your late thirties and you have to start playing different because you don't bounce back as quick. And you can't bend the same way that you once did, even if you're keeping in really good shape. And I am not. I'm keeping in passable shape. But uh, again, I, I'm, I'm limited from going gung-ho on that particular one. And so for me, it is very important to know where that is. And for other people to know it too. I recommend it. Because we have the advantage in the year 2023 of being able to say, as civilians, no thank you. I would like to go back into my air conditioning or I would like to go relax and <laughs> go to the store, go to the movies or something. You know, we're not dealing with this constant oppressive heat. Like I, my mind often drifts to the factions that were fighting in the South during the civil war. I've been in the South during the summer. It is atrocious. And I'm sure any of you from there can agree. Like the air is just wet. Like you just have to accept that you will be wet. Because between the humidity and sweat, there's no escaping it. Just a constant level of moist. And it never fades. Doesn't matter how long you dry off after getting out of the shower. It doesn't matter how long the things are in the dryer after you wash them. Never, ever dry. Then we think about stuff like trench foot. Or what the equivalent would have been during the Civil War. You know, your feet being inside an enclosed space that's moist for long periods of time and has access to a lot of different bacteria and fungi. Not good. If you look at the stats for the American Civil War, there were more people killed by exposure and illness than there were by the actual fighting itself. And that is largely true for a lot of wars. I mean, you think back to Clausewitz, our, our dear friend who preached about the idea that medicine, that healthcare is not a part of the purview of the art of warfare, only to die from an infection himself. This stuff is very important. World War I, again, trench foot was a massive problem. Like there were whole policies put in. We studied it. When I was in the military, like in basic training, we still looked into it and made sure to address it. That's how bad the problem was. So, recognizing our limits, understanding that we do live in an age where we don't have to suffer like that. 
We can if we want to, or if we're in certain jobs, like if you're one of those heroes that's out there working construction right now, God bless you. I don't know how you're doing it. It's hot and smoky. These, these are tough people. Same thing with firefighters, amp that up a notch. Of course, you got your military and other folks who are, who are working outside and it's kind of their livelihood. And to you, I, I tip my hat because you are engaging in that which keeps our world running. You know, that kind of, that kind of manual labor. I understood, like I was a part of a generation where if you didn't go to college, people said you weren't going to succeed. Whereas if, if you're going into the manual labor, it was like, oh, those people are dumb. You know, those people are, uh, you know, they're not, they're not cut out for college. And now of course me and most of my peers are sitting here being like, man, we should have learned a trade. I mean, I, I went in for welding, but folks are looking around being like liberal arts means what exactly? How is it applicable to any job? Like it, it may have worked at some point, just having a bachelor's and underwater basket weaving, but now people want something specific for the industry. And even then, even then you're not always going to get things. I've known PhD, like postdoc folks who are working at Burger King. You know, uh, high education is not a guarantee of good money. Welding, there's good money in welding. There is good money in construction. There is good money in the things that kind of make the world go round. And so I'm not trying to get preachy on you. I went to, I went to college too. I did a little bit of both, but I just want to let you know, in case you're listening, that we don't have to choose the hard route, but if we do, it's often quite lucrative as well. And I feel like I've done, gone down a rabbit hole here and that's okay. I miss talking to you guys. I missed you, but I think we've just chatted randomly for long enough. Let's get in to our next set of these Napoleonic maxims. In this episode, we are technically starting at uh, maxim number 85 and moving forward. However, I do want to back up just a little bit to touch back on the two previous maxims because they kind of make sense within the general theme of the rest of what we're going to be discussing for this episode. And so, you know, true to, true to Napoleonic faction, let's do this thoroughly and let's do it right. So popping on back to, uh, well, let's see. Yeah. So on 83, right? A general in chief should never allow a rest to either the conquerors or the conquered. And this is about momentum. You know, if, if, if we're continuing forward, it's the same idea behind the, the pursuit the, or uh, theory, which is to say the more we harry our opponent, the more, the more pressure we put upon them, the less that they are able to respond to what we are doing otherwise. And so a general in chief never allowing that to happen, never allowing your opponent to get their footing back underneath them is important. And so this is a quality that needs to be in like present in a general in chief. But then there's also the portion about never letting the conquerors themselves, your own army, never letting them rest. Well, why not? Why shouldn't we? Again, momentum, you know, people have their blood up. People have the, the victory spirit in mind and they're pushing forward. You never want to rest because again, you know, uh, if we talk about physics, an object at rest remains at rest. And it's harder to get it moving than it is to just keep moving when you have a, an army already active in the field. And so this mobility, this dynamic style of warfare that Napoleon was so famous for using is, is kind of based in this idea. Keep moving. 
Stay mobile. Outpace, outflank our enemies, outthink our enemies is far better than trying to outbrawn them and far less costly in terms of men and material. Okay, let's look at 84 now. An irresolute general who acts without principles and without plan, even though he leads an army numerically superior to that of the enemy, almost always finds himself inferior to the latter on the field of battle. Fumblings in the mesotermine lose all in war. This is where training comes from. If we're talking about these principles, for instance, that's not just principles that the general themselves are operating under. These, these general ideas of, okay, these are, are things that we want to do and these are things that we want to avoid in terms of tactics and military action. But knowing what to do is more than just being well-read. It requires that kudel that we've talked about before. And so, but we, we still want to go into it with our knowledge. We still want to go in being like, okay, this is the, the bago tricks that I'm working with. And it's the same thing for our troops. We want to make sure that we train our troops for a variety of situations so that they are able to competently handle whatever is thrown at them. Because if they are not, if they are not well-trained and principled and able to do what they need to do, and if the general themselves is of a similar mind or a similar issue where they're going in, they don't really have a plan. They're just like, well, I'm going to march at the enemy. You know, it happens all the time when I'm, you know, I'm watching people do Warhammer or, or do Belagarth or other such things. I see people going out there and they're just sort of beelining for their enemy. No real thought involved, no real planning, no tactics. You know, even if there's not like a, a, a massive overplan, I ran into the problem when I was first starting to fight of trying to put together these elaborate schemes and these elaborate plans that would play out like a, a symphony on the field, but they were very complicated, very difficult to pull off. And as a result, they never hardly ever worked. And so I had to change. I had to change my idea and now go in with the idea of like, I have a general plan. All right, you and me, Mac, we're going to, we're going to go up the left and we're going to support each other going up the left. And we're going to try to watch what the center and the right are doing and play off of what they're doing. But we have a general idea of where we want to be and what we want to be doing while we're there. And then heading back to those principles, we also kind of understand the things that we should avoid. We understand the things that uh, are, are major pitfalls are going to defeat us even before we've truly met the enemy on the field of battle. So that catches us up. We do not need to fumble. Do not fumble because you will find somebody like me who is more than happy to kill you while your sword is dropped on the ground. I almost always have people look at me strangely when they drop their weapon and I don't let them pick it back up. I says, I'm a fool. I'm a fool to do that. <laughs> I've been killed so many times by somebody either picking it up and then, you know, standing up and then, you know, actually winning or them throwing some sort of sneaky shot while they're down low. I've seen it all. So, uh, I, I, I just kill my opponent. I find that to be the best way to, to win. So now moving on to some new material. Number 85, a general of engineers who must conceive propose and direct all the fortifications of an army needs good judgment and a practical mind above all. There are different types of mind required. Usually when we're talking about a general, the implied general that we're speaking of is the general of the army, the one who is commanding all of it going together, but whose efforts are large, largely focused 
on the strategic aims of that army and what it involves. But there are many different types of general. Like it's, a, it's a high rank and folks can have it and do a lot of different jobs besides just being you know, general-in-chief, the person who is in overall command. And in this particular case, the general of engineers, this is the person who is going to put up the fortifications, as it said, and will likely be the one in charge of tearing down your opponent's fortifications. So a person who's doing this, we want to make sure that they are basically a mathematician. Because this is largely mathematics. I know that a lot of things about war can look like math, but are pure chaos. But when it comes to engineering, when it comes to fortifications, that's math. 110%. Sieges, that's math. 110%. So a general of the engineers needs to be somebody who can understand that and operate within those kind of confines. It's one of those few places in warfare where you don't want somebody who's super inventive or super you know, deviating from whatever the norm is because the norms exist for a reason when it comes to fortifications. And while there are, there have been absolutely just random discoveries made, for the most part, trigonometry is trigonometry. Whether you're using a catapult or a trebuchet or long-range artillery, Trigonometry is trigonometry, so if we know the starting velocity and the starting angle of our projectile, we can then predict where it's going to go pretty accurately, especially if we then also have readings in terms of like wind conditions. These things all help, but it's a matter of mathematics. Artillery and fortifications and sieges and all of that, that's a matter of engineering. And so thusly, a general of the engineers needs to be somebody who can think like that. Many of us, in terms of 40k, for instance, would qualify as a general of engineers. You have rigid battle lines that, while math does dictate sometimes how things go, understanding angles and understanding probabilities, very, very, very important for something dice-based like 40k. And so, in that particular case, perhaps more of, a, of the general of engineering's mind is required than, let's say, like a tactical sergeant, which is more better, or more well-placed, on the field of battle when you're dealing with physical wargaming. Next, 86. A cavalry general should be a master of practical science, know the value of seconds, despise life, and not trust to chance. There's always some interesting uh, uh, things about translations <laughs> and kind of what goes across because despise life could mean a lot of different things. It could mean somebody who, you know, doesn't want anybody else to live. I'm, I'm thinking of like The Purge, one of those Death Guard, you know, sub, subgroups. There's like, well, universe is kind of, kind of done with. Let's just kill everything. Let's just burn it all out. You know, if it despise the life of the enemies, are we going to go and burn down villages and desecrate places of worship? Despise them? No, I think what he's referring to here, and if you look at the original French that kind of backs it up, Despise life means have a sense of reckless abandon. Because to be cavalry means to throw yourself directly into the face of danger. And so to be too cautious, to be too concerned with the preservation of your life or those around you, makes you into a, a bad cavalry officer. Somebody who isn't going to seize the initiative, follow through on their plan with the same sort of chutzpah that perhaps somebody who is a bit more reckless would have. 
but they still have to be a master of practical science. And this is different. Practical sciences are different than the sciences that we just described for the general of engineers. Practical sciences are tactics, understanding how your troops move and understand how they move into the opponent. Practical sciences is like the art of war gaming. It is the actual art of fighting, horsemanship, shooting. These practical sciences, these practical things of study are important. Cavalry is a very, very, very pragmatic sort of role. Despising life, of course, this idea of not being too cautious, not being too trepidatious when it comes to exposing oneself and one's comrades to danger, and not trusting to chance, which is very important. Again, as we've discussed before, cavalry, particularly in this time of warfare, were very fragile, easily broken. They were inferior to infantry in a straight-up fight. They were inferior to artillery in a straight-up fight. They were used for very, very, very specific instances and did them very well. And normally it was to break the opponent and engage in pursuit. That was their job. But to do this, we cannot trust a chance. It's a matter of being like, okay, is this going to happen? Are we going to have the openings that we need to survive because there's a difference between despising life, which is to say like that reckless sense of abandon and suicidal behavior, which you do not <laughs> want in a general. That's bad. That's bad to have on somebody who's commanding lives. So there's a, there's a fine line of course, between despising life as it's kind of put here in a weird translation and despising life. You feel me? So, yeah, it's, it's a lot more intense. A cavalry general requires a lot more intense personality than a general of engineering, typically. And, and far more, like, uh, I, I think of Jeb Stewart from the American Civil War. Apparently, that's what we're referencing a lot today. Very flamboyant. Very uh, well known for, for kind of being, um, not foppish, that's, that's not what I want, but just extra. I believe is what the kids would say <laughs> these days. He was very extra. And that's kind of typical of a lot of Cav folks because that's what's required to succeed in that particular role. 87. A general in the power of the enemy has no more orders to give. Whoever obeys him is a criminal. Absolutely. You know, this is something we've talked about before. It's not good to have somebody who is in the pocket of somebody else for whatever reason, whether it's financial, through marriage, through just pure politics, we want to make sure that our generals are loyal to us only. No split loyalties. It's one of the reasons why the U.S. military is very, very particular about foreign investments, especially as you start to move up the ladder, like you start to get up into, you know, major colonel general range, and they are a lot more, there's a lot more scrutiny. Because, you know, I live in the United States and we want our generals to be loyal to the United States, not to Britain, not to France, not to Saudi Arabia, not to Russia, not to China, not to anywhere else. Because it's important that the motivation for our general is purely de the defense and the prosecution of the aims of our particular country. And whoever is not following a general like that is a criminal because they are violating the statutes of their own civil society. 88. The heavy cavalry should be with the advance guard, 
with the rear guard and on the wings and reserve to support the light cavalry. Light cavalry is a wind-up. It's a scream. It is a, a, a tester, something that can fix and move and is very versatile. But in terms of like actually attacking, light cavalry are lacking. That's where heavy cav comes in. Now, heavy cav is not going to be as maneuverable as light cav, which is why they're held in reserve a little bit more. They're, they're, but they are everywhere where the light cav are because they need to be able to support the light cav. One without the other doesn't do a whole lot of good. You know, heavy cav without the light isn't operating with the same basis of mobility and cannot fix their opponents as well before the actual engagement. And light cavalry operating without heavy cavalry doesn't have the punch. It doesn't have the follow through that is necessary to make cavalry truly effective. And so these two need to be together, even though it might seem more logical to keep them away from the fighting where light cavalry go, heavy cavalry should not be far behind or too far away. And we can think of this, of course, in terms of both sorts of, of wargaming as well. If we're talking about tabletop or like console or, or a video game sort of uh, wargaming, then we are also talking about the coordination of all these various elements. I can't tell you the number of times where I have gotten overeager and shot out my light cav or whatever the equivalent of the light cav was and tried to, to seize an opportunity that I was sure was there. And it turned out that it was not. It was not actually there. And because I had dedicated so weak a force, but still an expensive force, because you know it's not just in, in 40K or, or anything like that where these, these points are expensive. Cavalry themselves, horses, one of the most expensive things in an army at this time. Expensive to get, expensive to train, expensive to feed. Horses were important. And so making sure that we are preserving that particular valuable resource is, is huge. And so sending something out just kind of on its own, unsupported, which light cav can do because they're way faster. It's easy for them to get isolated. It's easy for them to get out on their own because they're quick. But then you've wasted that unit. We've wasted that particular force because then the enemy can pick them off because there's nothing to follow through. Now, if we have something that functions as heavy cav as well, and we take it in that direction, well, now we've got a serious front. Now we've actually got something that needs to be worried about, but also something that has some staying power, which heavy cav is going to have more of. So, again, coming back to the point, we need both. Both are important for uh, properly prosecuting the type of war that uh, even we do now. Oh, and, and I mean, with, in terms of physical war gaming, let's talk, uh, you know, SCA, Belegarth stuff. Having people who just kind of run off on their own, who are just like Cav, it's easy to pick them off. I mean, yes, they're quick, but if we can get them singled out... We can beat them far easier. Now, if you've got somebody who's quick like that, going with somebody who's a little bit slower, but also flanking or also fleet of foot, now we have a concern. Now we have a concern. I call it rolling deep and rolling shallow. So if we look at a line and we think about it being a hinge, you know, coming up to, to flank our opponents, on the outside, that person is running far more and they're going for a deeper sort of flank. Whereas the person who's near the hinge of it is traveling a shorter distance, 
but still arriving at the near point on the flank. And so when you have this kind of double threat going on, when you have a deep roller and a shallow roller, this makes it a lot more effective because your opponent is having a hard time kind of distributing their forces in a way that can deal with both both of these threats. I, I see it all the time. I do it myself all the time. It is a very, very, very good technique for turning the flank. Not nearly as effective without both of them. If you just have light, like I said, you go out there and oftentimes get picked off. If it's just heavy, then it might not be quite enough to turn the line in terms of like overall mobility uh, sake. And so having both Having light cav with heavy cav and heavy cav with light cav makes it so that it's actually effective and not just a matter of, oh, there's something super fast over there. Let me just shoot it off the board or whack it off the field. And now your opponent doesn't have that particular fighter or that particular unit. Support. It's all about the support. 89. To wish to hold the cavalry in reserve for the end of the battle is to have no idea of the power of combined cavalry and infantry charges either for attack or for defense. Let's double back to Klauswitz real quick. Never charge cavalry into unbroken infantry. But that's not what he's talking about here. Remember the Napoleon style of warfare was very dynamic, very fast. And so the idea here is that the cavalry would be hitting after the infantry. Infantry go in, they mess up the formation, they start the scrum, and then the cavalry come peeling through and take advantage of the chaos that has ensued with their superior speed and superior uh, ability to kind of see what should be happening. They're, they're above. They're above everybody else. They're at least like a person above everybody else. And so they're able to see with far greater clarity the, the, the flow of battle, where they should be and where they should not be. But the reason that's possible is because the continuity of the opponent is being broken up with the infantry. Because charging in with just cav, that's a great way to lose those points. Great way to lose that unit. Just charging with them. Now, if we're using cav to finish them off, to come in and, and take advantage of that breaking, take advantage of that chaos, that is what cav is for. Not keeping them in reserves. And, and again, this is very Napoleonic, saying, uh-uh. Nothing in your reserves. If it is reserves, it's active reserves. It's there on purpose. It's not a matter of just holding things back. It's an active part of the army for him. And so, by the way, he didn't always do this. Like, if you look through Napoleon's campaign, he violates most of these maxims at least once. And so, again, when, when we study stuff like this, it's the ideal. It's the Platonian ideal. It doesn't actually match up with reality most of the time, but it's kind of what we're striving for in a lot of ways. But yeah, the combined charge is far more effective with both of them. You know, it's a similar idea to what we were talking about with the cavalry, where the light and the heavy complement one another. Well, this is another way that that happens. The cavalry and the infantry also complement one another. And where one goes, the other one can support, and they are far more effective together than they are individually. So when we're talking about our cavalry, instead of keeping them back, instead of keeping them quote-unquote safe, engaging them in a way that is actually useful, remembering that a cavalry general needs to despise life, but not be wasteful with it. There is a difference. There is a difference, and it's a fine line to walk. Number 90. 
The power of cavalry is in its impulsion, but it is not only its velocity that ensures success, it is order, formation, and proper employment of reserves. It's the hit that makes cavalry important. They don't have the same sticking power as infantry does. They don't have the same ability to sustain damage like artillery does. Cavalry is about the hit, how much damage can be done all at once. And it's not just speed that does this, is what he's saying. It's not just about getting there first. It's a matter of getting there in order and formation, making sure that we hit with discipline and not just reckless abandon. Because again, d despising life is one thing. Wasting resources is something completely different. And I've seen this before too. You've seen people who charge, seen people who, who do some sort of uh, fast movement and they break apart. Some people are faster, some people are slower. And so they hit their opponent in, in waves, staggered. And this means that the opponent can deal with them one at a time. If I've got three waves that are coming in separately and my opponent has one block of an army and we have similar number of troops overall, well, then that means every single fight, it's 3v1. Because the one wave hits, 3v1. Next wave hits, 3v1. And if the first wave and the second wave don't stick, we're going to see the same thing with the third wave. And so it's not enough to hit our opponents. It, it needs to be done concertedly. It needs to be done with some sort of underlying uh, organization to it. Because again, it's not just random. I mean, it, you, you see it all the time in, in movies and whatnot where they break apart and they kind of do their own thing. That's, that's not how it works. It's not just speed that does this. It is order and formation and proper employment of reserves. Now, that kind of almost seems like it contradicts the one previous, where it's like, don't keep them in reserves. There's a difference between don't keep them in reserves and don't have them in reserves. And the difference being that keep is to hold it back. Keep is to say, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use this in a particular time. Hold is to say, I'm going to use this when I see that time arise and I'm going to actively look for that time and then properly employ those services. And of course, not charge them into unbroken infantry. Very important. I saw it. The reason I'm drilling this today is I saw it, saw it multiple times, not just in, in this particular day of fighting, but also in my last Warhammer match, I saw a lot of this. And so I, I, I do want to stress it quite a bit because it's important. Number 91, the cavalry should compose a quarter of the army in Flanders or Germany, in the Pyrenees or the Alps, a 20th, and in Italy or Spain, a sixth. So this is a pure matter of geography here. You know, as we've talked about before, cavalry are the most effective when we're talking about open fields, open uh, planes of contact where their mobility and their ability to like withdraw and hit again is not hampered. And so when we're looking at a place like Flanders, or a good portion of the of Germany that he would be operating in, it's fairly open. You've got a lot of farmland, a lot of marshland, and so having a larger cavalry section is useful because you can take advantage of all that open space to really maneuver upon our opponent. Well, suddenly it's down to a 20th in the Pyrenees or the Alps. Well, that's mountainous combat. That's, that's a whole lot of tight-in spaces that are better occupied by infantry. So we don't want to have as much cavalry there because that's just wasted resources yet again. Again, cav is expensive. 
is expensive to have in this particular time. And so going there and expecting to do well with a larger cavalry section is, it's just not useful. It's not good. And then Italy and Spain is kind of the, kind of a, a little bit of both. And so being prepared with a sixth, but not quite going up to a quarter is a good idea for that. And so when we're putting together our lists for something like Warhammer, or when we're looking at our composition for the field uh, on Bell, this is a good thing to remember, especially when we're picking our teams. Like I'm sitting there and we're about to do some woods combat. And I know that I've got a couple of really, there's some really good fighters over there that are slow and really good fighters that are fast. Well, if we're in a confined place like woods combat, I'm going to want those slower fighters. I'm going to want people that can pick a place and stay there and hold that area because that's going to be the most important activity in that sort of scene. Now, the majority of Belagarth fights, the majority of our events take place in wider, more open spaces, in which case cavalry is always at a premium. You always see people go first. Like it's usually pole arms, archery, and then calf, which is say really fast people who are, who are typically pulled person and, and for good reason. You know, all these things are fantastic. You've got your reach that comes with your pole arms. You've got your quote unquote artillery with the archers, and then you've got your calf and then everything else kind of fills in in between. So it is important. Remember we talk about army composition and how that matters. Um, backtracking a little bit. I actually just played a game against a good friend of mine. It was his very first game. He had just bought my chaos space Marines off of me and he was taking them against me. And I, when I looked across the field, when we were setting up, when, when I saw the units that he had decided to bring, I knew already that I had won because just because of his army composition, because he had not brought enough stopping power for knights and had not there, there was no real way to counter my mobility. And so I was able to maneuver on the field in a, in a superior fashion. I was able to target down those things that were actually a threat to my knights and then just sort of stomp all over the field after that. And as I told him afterwards, because he was feeling kind of down, the score was 44 to 88. It seemed kind of one-sided. And I told him, uh-uh, there were several times where the tide almost turned. And if the army composition had been better, it likely would have. So having the right amount of cavalry for the job, having the right army composition for where we're going and what we're doing is intensely important, perhaps more important than most other things. 92. In a battle, like in a siege, skill consists in converging a massive fire on a single point. Once the combat is opened, the commander who is adroit will suddenly and unexpectedly open fire with a surprising mass of artillery on one of these points and is sure to seize it. This is quintessential Napoleonic doctrine. The idea of saying that point right there, I don't want to see it no more. See the people on that hilltop? I don't want them to be there anymore. And it happens quickly. It happens as a matter of surprise. You've got the general fight going on, you know, a little back and forth sorties here and there, and then the sudden violent attack on one given area. Very effective. Very effective. And, and it requires a lot of coordination to pull off. It's not just a matter of, not something you can just throw together. It, it takes time. It takes training. It takes a, a kind of a plan going into it. 
to be able to pull something like this off. Because if we can, it shatters the enemy force in that area. And if we're looking at a, a flank that needs to be taken or a, a fortified position that should be broken in either of these situations, this is fantastic. I use this in 40k all the time too. I believe in taking down my opponent one unit at a time. I focus fire and I say, okay, like in the case of Zane recently, I said, those Havocs over there are dangerous. I will shoot them until they're gone. I will have the full mass of my firepower, the full mass and arsenal of these gigantic stompy boys, and I'm going to put it into those guys. And it worked. It killed them. And it overwhelmed that particular flank, and it managed to let me punch in a lot uh, further than I would have been able to otherwise with my quote-unquote calf. And that was the right idea. That's Napoleonic Tactics 101. Right there. It's what he's famous for. All right. And you know, I think that might actually be a good place to stop. And uh, again, be like, I'm just, it's so nice to be back. I, I, I've been sitting there counting down the days when I would be able to record again. And so it's nice to be back. I'm hoping you guys are, are happy to be back too. And we can sit here and continue our conversation about this, this subject that means so much to us. The subject that fascinates us to no end. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't had enough of the art of wargaming in your life, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram, where I occasionally post funny and educational memes. If you want to get in touch with the show directly, you can email us at artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or concerns that you might have. Also be sure to check out all of our sister shows on the Earworm Network, including General Nerdery, Word Balloons, Fried Squirms, and more. We're working hard on having something for everyone. And again, you can find those at earverm.com. That's E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M. You can also find that in the show notes. But for now, this has been Yaga Malark, signing off. Mm-hmm.